You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 213, The Battle of Briar Creek. Last week, we looked at some of the British efforts to expand on the capture of Savannah by sending an expedition to the Port Royal Island in South Carolina and to set up a Loyalist recruitment center in Augusta, Georgia. The Port Royal expedition failed to secure the island, and the British only remained in Augusta for several weeks before withdrawing. The British under Colonel Archibald Campbell left Augusta on February 14, 1779 the same day as the Battle of Kettle Creek that I talked about last week. Campbell had already issued orders to withdraw the day before, so the loss at Kettle Creek had nothing to do with his decision. Rather, it had to do with the arrival of more Patriot militia reinforcements at Perrysburg. General Benjamin Lincoln had set up command at Perrysburg, which sat on the South Carolina side of the Savannah River, between the main British force at Savannah and Campbell's outpost at Augusta. The British feared that the Americans might cross the river to cut off and isolate the smaller contingent at Augusta. For several weeks, that was not a concern because the Americans did not have enough men. General Lincoln had about 350 Continental soldiers at Perrysburg, along with about 1,000 militia from Georgia and South Carolina. The bulk of the militia was from South Carolina and by all accounts was poorly organized. Lincoln was concerned about having to use them in battle. Also, many of the South Carolina militia refused to cross the border into Georgia. As they had with Lincoln's predecessor, General Robert Howe, the South Carolina militia officers refused to take orders from the Continental commander. Continental General William Moultrie, from South Carolina himself, wrote in one report, that the South Carolina militia were, quote, worse than nothing, as they absolutely refused General Lincoln's orders. Now, this situation changed on January 29th, when General Lincoln received the first of his requested reinforcements, more than 1,100 North Carolina militia under the command of General John Ash. Now, Lincoln ordered Ash to join South Carolina General Andrew Williamson, who had a smaller force of militia just across the Savannah River from Augusta. It was after Ash's reinforcements appeared across the river from Augusta that British Colonel Campbell decided to evacuate the city. I mentioned Andrew Williamson back in episode 191 when then-Colonel Williamson had commanded the South Carolina militia that participated in the effort with Continental General Robert Howe to invade British-controlled East Florida. Williamson, at that point, had refused to take orders from Howe or even cooperate effectively with him, leading to the American loss at Alligator Bridge and the failure of the expedition. 
Williamson was a Scottish immigrant who had settled on the western frontier of the South Carolina colony as a young man. By 1760, he was lieutenant in the South Carolina militia and served in the campaign against the Cherokee that I discussed way back in episode 15. Williamson had established his plantation in the backcountry a few miles from Fort 96. By the time the revolution began, he was a militia major and a committed patriot. He was elected to the Provincial Congress for the colony. In 1775, he was a key officer in the suppression of Loyalist organizing in the western part of South Carolina in the fighting I discussed back in episode 77. The following year, William received promotion to colonel for the campaign to crush another Cherokee uprising that threatened the newly declared independent state of South Carolina. See episode 102. In 1778, South Carolina had promoted Williamson to Brigadier General and sent him to fight with the Continental General Howe in the expedition against Florida. After the British captured Savannah, Williamson assembled his army and coordinated defensive efforts with General Lincoln. Joining General Williamson in the effort to challenge British control of Augusta was North Carolina Militia General John Ash. Ash was the son of a wealthy lawyer who had immigrated to the Cape Fear region of North Carolina many decades before. Ash was born into a powerful and influential family within the colony. His father served as Speaker of the Colonial Assembly and owned a large plantation but he died when John was still a small child. As a young man, Ash briefly attended Harvard College, although he did not graduate. He established a plantation in North Carolina. He served in the Colonial Assembly and became Speaker himself for a few years, just as his father had done. Ash also served as an officer in the Colonial Militia. In the pre-war era, Ash established a reputation as a committed patriot. He served in the Provincial Congress for North Carolina and sat on the Committees of Safety and Correspondence. He resigned his commission as a colonel of the Royal Colonial Militia and took a position in the Patriot Militia at the same rank. In 1775, Colonel Ash led the Patriot capture of Fort Johnson, which I discussed back in episode 69. He had raised the regiment at his own expense promising his plantation as a personal guarantee of pay for his soldiers. The following year, Ash received appointment as Brigadier General. Ash had to establish defenses at Cape Fear in 1776 when the British briefly threatened to land there. He also helped crush the Loyalists that ended the, with the battle at Moores Creek Bridge. Now, the next couple of years were relatively uneventful for North Carolina. In late 1778, South Carolina promoted Ash to be the first major general of militia in the state. After the British captured Savannah a month later, General Lincoln sent out a call for support. Governor Richard Caswell ordered Ash to lead his militia army to assist General Lincoln. When General Ash arrived in Perrysburg with his army at the end of January, General Lincoln judged that his North Carolina militia was far better organized and disciplined than the South Carolina militia that had been his main reinforcement up until that time. So Lincoln ordered Ash to join General Williamson up by Augusta. Now apparently, Ash was a bit miffed by these orders. He had just marched his men 400 miles, and they were still lacking equipment. 
Lincoln was ordering Ash on another 120-mile march with little rest and few supplies. Given that there were hundreds of South Carolina forces better rested and supplied, it seemed rather unfair to give this assignment to his North Carolina army. Even so, Ash complied with the orders and spent the better part of the next two weeks marching to meet up with Williamson. Ash's North Carolina militia, along with some other soldiers who had joined them at Perrysburg, arrived just across the river from British-occupied Augusta on February 13th. When combined with General Williamson's forces, the total enemy force facing the British probably totaled about 2,400 or 2,500 men. British Colonel Campbell observed the combined militia army, which he guessed was more than three times the size of his thousand-man garrison, and opted to evacuate the following morning. The British tried to put their best face on the evacuation. They recharacterized the taking of Augusta as just a raid which had resulted in the acquisition of supplies and the recruitment of several hundred loyalist militia. But based on their hopes at the time they first occupied Augusta, it had to be seen as a failure. The British had hoped that thousands of loyalists would take up arms on behalf of the king, and they would establish an army that would not only pacify all of the Georgia backcountry, but would provide the soldiers needed to invade South Carolina. Instead, British authority following this withdrawal would be limited to a small region just around Savannah. Colonel Campbell marched his regulars and militia back toward Savannah, marching for nearly two weeks before establishing a camp in Ebenezer, just over 20 miles north of Savannah and about 10 miles north of the main American force at Perrysburg, just across the river in South Carolina. Along the way, he acquired 270 men who had escaped from the Battle of Kettle Creek that I discussed last week. While the men were too few and too late to change anything strategically, Campbell formed them into the Royal Regiment of North Carolina and added them to his army. After the evacuation of Augusta, General Williamson's South Carolina militia immediately occupied the town and set about exacting punishments on any loyalists or loyalist property that belonged to men who backed Campbell while the British were in Augusta. He made sure all loyalist outposts that had been established were eliminated, and that the locals who were still there were either arrested for collaboration or swore an oath of loyalty to the Patriot cause. General Ash followed orders to pursue Campbell's retreating army. Ash's militia pursued, but not very aggressively. Remember, the North Carolina had just marched 400 miles to join with Lincoln, then marched well over 100 miles up to Augusta, and now were marching another 100 miles down the South Carolina bank of the Savannah River in pursuit of the British. These were also militia, many of whom were not combat experienced. Even General Ash had not seen combat in over two years. The British under Campbell had suffered one death of a regular soldier during his occupation of Augusta, but that one death was one that greatly upset many of the British soldiers. During this era, it was a common practice for officers to deploy a guard to ensure the protection of a home or family from looting or destruction. A Patriot officer who was being held prisoner in Savannah had requested that his home and family near Savannah receive such protection. Colonel Campbell had deployed Private McAllister, 
of the 71st Regiment's Light Infantry to ensure the protection of the home of this captured American officer. The American raiders found this British guard at the American home and killed him. For the British, this breach of protocol, murdering a soldier assigned to protect the home and family of an American officer, was a crime. Campbell protested the killing to General Williamson. In response, Williamson said that he would send the men to General Lincoln to determine whether punishment was appropriate. Lincoln declined to take any action. Some experts have speculated that General Lincoln's decision not to punish the murderers was out of fear that it might lead to much of the rest of the South Carolina militia deserting and going home. McAllister had apparently been a popular soldier in his regiment, and his murder did not go over well. The cry, Remember Poor McAllister, would be used in several later battles and skirmishes to encourage the regulars to kill the enemy without mercy. Once Colonel Campbell reached Ebenezer, he turned over command to Lieutenant Colonel Mark Prevost and headed back to Savannah on his own. A few days later, he boarded a ship for London. Campbell had been in America for three years, most of them as a prisoner of war. His personal finances back in Britain had become a mess, and he also wanted to get married. Before Campbell left, he had worked with Colonel Prevost to develop a plan of attack against the Americans at Briar Creek. Prevost was the younger brother of General Augustine Prevost, who was in overall command at Savannah. He assumed command of the detachment at Ebenezer. With the main American force under General Lincoln at Perrysburg, General Williams' militia in and around Augusta, and Ashe's militia army at Briar Creek, the British were finding themselves increasingly hemmed in. They relied on the backcountry to provide their army with food and supplies. Now, cut off from that region, the British would have to rely on ships from Florida, which were probably not going to be numerous enough to keep the army fed. The withdrawal from Augusta and the loss of the Loyalist militia at Kettle Creek did nothing to encourage the locals to have faith that the British were in control of Georgia. Most Georgians, outside of Savannah, had more to fear from Patriot reprisals if they cooperated with the British in any way. On March 1st, the British sent a force of about 500 men to take a position about three miles south of the Americans at Briar Creek. That night, Colonel Prevost took an even larger force, plus five pieces of field artillery, to march around to the west out of sight and get north of the Americans at Briar Creek. It took Prevost until the morning of March 3rd to get his soldiers into position. The Americans were watching the 500 enemy soldiers to their south and were not aware that a larger force was descending on them from the north. General Ash had received some reports of the British moving to the north, but assumed that these enemies to the north were just smaller raiding parties. On the afternoon of March 3rd, Ash received reports that the enemy was just minutes away from entering his camp. A portion of his men had been deployed to the south to monitor the enemy force that was meant to distract him. Ash formed up the 900 or so men in his main camp to form a defensive line. But again, these were relatively untrained and inexperienced militia. They also had a wide variety of muskets, meaning that deployment of ammunition was a source of confusion. The British force under Prevost advanced on the American line. 
the American center, which had the few Continental soldiers, supplemented by Georgia militia, advanced as well to close the gap between the two firing armies. The North Carolina militia, on both the right and left flanks, did not advance, leading to large gaps in the American lines. Prevost saw these gaps and ordered his regulars to fix bayonets and charge. Many of the North Carolina fled into the swamps without firing a shot. The American center held for a couple of volleys, but were soon overwhelmed and either surrendered or fled. Most of the Continentals were killed or taken prisoner. General Ash fled after his militia, abandoning the field. Hearing gunfire, about 200 American reinforcements returned to the camp from their duty repairing a bridge. Seeing the Americans being routed, they also fled the field without firing a shot. The total number of American casualties is unknown. The British reported killing at least 150 and capturing 227 prisoners. Since most of the militia fled into the swamps, more may have drowned while trying to escape. The 1,700 men that General Ash had under his command on the morning of March 3rd turned into a 450-man force that managed to make it back to the American forces. Most likely, the vast majority of missing were militia, who just continued running until they got back home in North Carolina. The British reported only five killed and 11 wounded. The British victory at Briar Creek ended any American hopes of recapturing Savannah and pushing the British back into Florida. The American momentum from the victory at Kettle Creek and recapturing Augusta quickly reversed in favor of the British. Just before the battle, General Prevost was worried about an American attack on Savannah and desperately struggling to build defenses around town as quickly as possible. After the American loss at Briar Creek, the British once again moved north. Although they did not occupy Augusta again, they did move a force within 40 miles of Augusta, once again giving the British better access to the Georgia backcountry. The Americans in Augusta pulled back into South Carolina, once again ceding the state to British control. General Lincoln once again consolidated all of his forces around Perrysburg, out of fear that another isolated division could be subject to a British attack. Colonel Campbell had been appointed governor of the Royal Colony of Georgia. Colonel Prevost served as lieutenant governor. So when Colonel Campbell left for London within a few days of the Battle of Briar Creek, Colonel Prevost became the chief executive of the royal government in Georgia. Working with his older brother, General Prevost, as military commander, the two men attempted to restore order and colonial status to Georgia. The men had hoped to get more reinforcements to begin a new offensive into South Carolina, and while they didn't have the numbers to do that yet, British leaders declared that Georgia was the first state to return to British colonial control. Even under British control, however, the British were unable to get many more Georgians to join their Loyalist militia. Rural Georgians saw what happened to the Loyalists massacred at Kettle Creek and the British willingness to abandon them to the Patriots when it was militarily convenient, as they had done by evacuating Augusta. Locals could not be assured that there would not be another reversal that would put them in danger of retribution by the Patriots. As such, Georgia Loyalists never enlisted in anywhere near the numbers that the British leaders had hoped. 
General Ash managed to return to Perrysburg with a few of his soldiers. He would be court-martialed for cowardice, but acquitted on that charge. He was, however, found guilty of failing to establish adequate defenses for his camp at Briar Creek. He continued to serve as commander of the South Carolina militia. Most of the militia saw their enlistments end within a month of the loss at Briar Creek, and they were in no mood to sign on for any extended stays, regardless of any promises of increased pay or other benefits. They had lost faith in their military commanders and simply wanted to go home. General Ash also returned to North Carolina, where he resumed his other primary duty as state treasurer. General Lincoln was left in command of a much smaller army and did not have sufficient troops to go on another offensive action. Next week, Alexander Hamilton proposes freeing slaves and arming them to serve in the Continental Army. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Mike Hager. You guys have really been key to helping me cover all of my expenses on this podcast, and I really appreciate it. Thanks also to Paul Lapore for his one-time gift via PayPal. All of your support really helps me to cover my costs, and I do appreciate all donations, large and small. I just got back from last weekend's Mohawk Valley Conference of the American Revolution in New York. It was a great time, lots of great authors and presentations. I got to hang out with Roger Williams, who is an officer with Sons of the American Revolution and also the publisher of Knox Press. I also got to hang out with John J.L. Bell of the Boston 1775 blog and Jason Mandrish from Founder of the Day. It's really kind of fun to hang out with a group that can immediately understand a joke about Isaac Hopkins or Sybil Ludington without having to explain it. The event is hosted by Brian Mack, who runs the Fort Plain Museum. If you ever get up that way, it's definitely worth stopping. The museum bookstore alone is worth visiting for its comprehensive collection of American Revolution books. I'm really looking forward to my visit next year. And by the way, the conference is open to anyone who has a love of history, so if you want to join me there next year, feel free to reach out. 
One of the things that Roger Williams and I got to talking about was the tours that he gives on the 10 crucial days, that is, Washington's Crossing, the Battles of Trenton and Princeton. It's a great bus tour of the area, and we discussed the idea of running a special American Revolution podcast tour of those battles sometime next spring. So I'm trying to see if there's any interest from you folks for participating in such a tour. I'll probably be discussing it in the Facebook group and in my newsletter. If you may be interested and are not signed up for either of those, you might want to do so. There are links to both my Facebook group and my email mailing list on all of my blog entries, which you can find at blog.amrevpodcast.com. I have two corrections from last week's episode. One is that I referred to the sixth-rate ship, the Vigilant, as a British ship of the line. Stephen Cook pointed out correctly that only first-rate through fourth-rate ships are considered ships of the line. As a sixth-rate ship, the Vigilant is not. Also, I once again badly mangled a local name. I referred to Beaufort on Port Royal in South Carolina. Alan Rosenfeld pointed out that it is pronounced Beaufort. Thanks to both of you for helping me to correct those mistakes. This week, we covered the Battle of Briar Creek. This American loss was a big frustration after the winds at Kettle Creek and Port Royal that I discussed last week. It's also a pretty good example of how experienced British officers can often gain an advantage over less experienced militia officers. If last week's battle prevented the British from launching a large offensive into South Carolina, This week's battle at Briar Creek ensured that the Americans would not be able to launch a large offensive against Savannah. So, as we have seen many times, we are left with a standoff in the South. Don't worry, though, there will be plenty more back and forth to come. There is no book, at least not one that I've found, that focuses just on the Battle of Briar Creek, and I've already recommended several books that cover the Southern theater of war during this era. So I'm going a little broader this week with my book recommendation. There's a new book recently released called Winning Independence by John Furling. This book covers the entire Southern theater of the war. It's pretty long and comprehensive at over 550 pages, not counting notes and index. The first 100 pages or so summarize the war up to 1779, but then the book really dives into its focus on the Southern campaign from Savannah at the end of 1778 until Yorktown in 1781. It gives a thorough review of these crucial years without the focus you usually get on any one battle. There's also an audiobook version if you prefer to listen to it rather than read, so if you want a book that focuses on the war in the South, you might want to try Winning Independence by John Furling. My online recommendation does focus just on Briar Creek, and it's one of the sources that really helped me with today's episode. It's a master's thesis that I found online called An Unfortunate Affair, The Battle of Briar Creek and the Aftermath in Georgia by Henry Williams. It was written in 2012, and it really takes a close look at this battle. It's about 70 pages long, and it's available from the Georgia Southern University's website. So if you want to read more specifically about Briar Creek, this is a great resource. As always, I've included a link to it on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Now, my question this week involves the tricky issue of slavery. The questioner asks, 
Some disingenuous people say the American Revolution was about slavery. Slavery, however, was abolished in England in 1833. Wouldn't colonial slave owners benefit from stable English rule rather than revolution that can result in property seizure? So as I said, this is kind of a tricky question because it is a little bit nuanced. Now, there was some controversy a couple of years ago when the New York Times 1619 Project released some quotes which essentially said that the revolution was started in part at least to protect the institution of slavery in America. The project has since retracted those comments and issued some much more vague comments on the subject. Now, the basis for their argument comes from the case of Somerset v. Stewart, which is something I discussed way back in episode 58. But it involved a colonist who brought his slave to England. The slave escaped, and the master recaptured him, imprisoned him, and announced that he intended to sell him to a plantation in Jamaica. The slave went to court, arguing that Britain had no law that recognized his status as a slave, and therefore he was illegally imprisoned, having not committed any crime. The court agreed. The judge found that there was no basis for slavery under British common law and that there was no statute in England that recognized his condition as a slave. Somerset was released as a free man. No doubt this was an important decision. The judge was Lord Mansfield, who was a very important jurist in Britain at the time, and many point to this case as a milestone on the move to the eventual abolition of all slavery within the British Empire many decades later. But that said, taken by itself, this 1772 decision did not end slavery anywhere and did not directly threaten slavery in the colonies where slavery was established by statute, not by common law. Even so, there is some argument that colonial leaders, particularly in South Carolina, saw this decision as a concern and may have encouraged some leaders to join the movement seeking more autonomy from rule by parliament. Some historians have stretched that into arguing that slavery was in fact a cause of the revolution and that the fear of ending slavery caused many Southerners to join the revolution. We may never know for certain exactly what mix of motivations inspired all different patriots to join the cause for American independence, but we do know that there was absolutely no attempt by British officials to end slavery in the colonies and in fact, Britain had taken several steps to prevent colonial efforts to stop the slave trade. In other words, Britain was preventing some colonies from doing things that might slowly end the slave trade in America. We also know that a great many leaders of the revolution in America either were or became anti-slavery advocates shortly after the war. It seems hard to make the case that they were fighting a war to preserve slavery only to turn around and then devote many more years toward abolishing slavery. If anything, the ideals of the American Revolution kick-started the abolition movement. We see the movement grow quickly in both America and Britain in the decades following the war. We see all European powers, including France and Spain, end slavery in the early 19th century. Seven of the 13 original states also abolished slavery very early in independence. Congress ended the slave trade and opened up the Northwest Territory with a slave ban. Those reforms were all consequences of the success of the idea set forth during the American Revolution, even if that first generation did not entirely live up to those ideals. 
But as I said, abolition really became a movement in the early 19th century. It was not an issue that led to the war. If it had been an issue, it would have deeply divided colonial leaders. It was that fear of disunity that caused the colonial leaders to kick the can on the slavery issue down the road and leave it for another generation to resolve. If you have a question about the revolution, please email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com or just post it on the American Revolution Podcast Facebook group, or you can even reach out to me on Twitter or LinkedIn. There's plenty of ways to get in touch with me, and I look forward to your questions. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.